Welcome back, Andy. Thanks. So back on March 21st, you were on the podcast to explain where Alaska is with COVID-19 and how Alaska emergency medicine is dealing with it and preparing for it. Yeah. And uh, I have to say the last month has been um, a really different month for everybody, I think. Like not just emergency medicine, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's definitely been, I mean, we've been hunkering down for over a month at this point. Yeah. And uh, a ton's changed at work. I mean, we're just, we're both lucky, but also reaping the benefit of being one of the places that had it show up a little later and being fortunate to have some leaders that were willing to adopt mitigating measures pretty early relative to other places. And I think we're sitting in a good place in this next, this next month is going to be quite interesting as well as we try to move forward from that. Mm -hmm. So yesterday you texted me and asked if we should do an update soon, because as the Anchorage municipality begins to open up again, uh, there are some things you said that should get out there. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about a few things. Um, one is what the hospitals have been doing and the ERs, you know, more specifically, because that's my environment, have been doing both what we've seen over the last month, but also uh, how we're preparing and what how our practices have changed to try to both treat COVID, but also keep everyone else safe. I wanted to talk a little bit about how, you know, for years we've talked about trying to get across to the community that the ER is for emergencies and not that sense that the ER gets overused and that's part of why wait times get long at times. Um, and really when you look at data before COVID, maybe five to 8% of ER visits were avoidable, um, especially after Medicaid expansion, like it was a lot less, but, um, about five to eight percent of the population uses the ER when they should probably be using primary care instead. And we've been trying to get that message across for years. And now with COVID, all of a sudden the fear of being at the hospital and getting COVID has kept a huge number of people away. And it's not just that five to eight percent. It's uh, a ton of people that probably need to be coming in and mm -hmm. and and that change is something I wanted to address a little bit too, uh, because emergency medicine nationwide is noticing that I saw one statistic that said that heart attacks are down nationwide 38%. And we know that heart attacks aren't down. It's just that 38% of people with them are probably sitting at home with them. And what happens then is that a part of their heart dies and they end up with heart failure and show up later, even sicker. And you don't get to do the things early on that would have helped. So um, trying to maybe discuss the, the sort of place in the middle where we need to end up. It's been an amazing response by the community to try to deal with this, and, and that's been one of them that was kind of an unforeseen um, consequence of, of getting the message out and people really taking it to heart, which is pretty amazing. And, I, and then we talked a little bit about talking about the public health aspects of the next, of where is this going from here? Mm -hmm. So where do you think we should start? What should we talk about first? Um, do you want to talk about what's kind of happened over the last month and what we've changed in the ER? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have been reading the news. <laughs> it's kind of hard not to these days. Mm -hmm. 
uh, especially that we all have time when you're not working. I mean, uh, one of the primary things this month that I, I totally recognize is that I'm super lucky I have a job. I mean, at times people thank me for doing the job I do, but I'm lucky, man. I have a job, and that's an amazing thing right now. Mm -hmm. um, the community in the ER has been pretty wild. You know, people were super stressed at the beginning. Uh, we really didn't know what to expect. We didn't know if there was going to be a huge explosion in cases. Um, and we were sort of mentally preparing for the worse. We changed a lot of our practices in the ER. You know, all, all of a sudden now we are wearing a mask from the minute I get to work until the minute I leave. And that's true about all the doctors and nurses. Um, the whole PPE discussion's been pretty lively. And we're fortunate to be in a hospital that quickly allowed us to adopt universal masking of all the providers and nurses in the ER, and then they adopted it to the whole hospital. That hasn't been the case nationwide. And we adopted it before we had a problem. So that's probably kept healthcare professionals safer here. We also were lucky to have a situation where we weren't getting overwhelmed with patients and overwhelmed with running through our PPE. So we're definitely, you know, Alaska's been in a, a better place. Uh, so we've been able to, without that huge flood of patients, been able to get in a better place with PPE, though it, it's still something that if we start to have a big uptake in cases could potentially get thin. But in general, um, while not everyone agrees with extended use protocols, which you may have seen in the news, where you're using PPE, say N95 masks for more than one shift, there's questions as to how absolutely safe that is. It's still, we're in a lot much better place than the places that have been overwhelmed in terms of protecting our providers. And that's across the board, nurses, techs, clerks, the people who clean the ER who are, I mean, they're, those folks are in some ways probably exposed more than anyone other than the nurses who are in the room a ton of time. Mm -hmm. um, we've been able to protect everyone and I, and I don't think we've had Maybe I don't know any specific cases of healthcare providers getting it at work. Maybe that's happened. Why? Well, yeah, there were those clinics in Fairbanks, and there was the nursing or the rehab home in Fairbanks, um, but not in the ERs, as far as I know. And that's or in the hospital. And I think that's really good, and that's said a lot about both the effort on the side of the hospitals and also providers just adopting new practices, and that's also protecting our patients because. If we're all masked and gloved, and hopefully they are too, we're all protecting each other. The other big change in the ER, at least at Prov, and I don't know totally what tactic um, regional and native have gone to, because um, there's a few different approaches to this, but we have a respiratory tract now, and then um, sort of the normal part of the ER. And so all of the respiratory patients, the, the most highly likely patients to have coronavirus, all go into one area of the ER. And that way we're cohorting more and having less interaction between patients that could potentially be carrying the virus um, and isolating that more. Mm -hmm. um, we have increased our capacity of negative pressure rooms. So that means if we, let's say we're intubating someone, and that both in the main part of the ER as well as in the um, respiratory tract so that if we have to do any sort of aerosolizing procedure or have some intubate someone or have somebody on a ventilator or uh, do the nasal swabs and you don't have to have a negative pressure room but it is a little safer 
um, we can do all those things both more safely for both the patients and the providers. Um, so we've been allowed to prepare for a month and had a slow trickle of cases. Um, and that's pretty amazing. We're pretty lucky. And then same thing, the hospital, hospital wide has been preparing, you know, what units are these patients going to go to changing pro CPR protocols have completely changed. You don't want to do positive pressure ventilation. So you don't want to blow air into somebody's lungs who's not breathing because you're potentially aerosolizing virus. So we've kind of gone to a different algorithm for CPR. Both EMS has done this and we have done it too in the hospital so that you're protecting providers if there's uh, has to be CPR. And, and this is a huge learning curve, like totally changing our practices from things that people have learned over the years. And it's taken a lot of training and a lot of effort and a, a huge effort on, on part of the both the leadership amongst the physicians and the hospital and the nursing educators and the nursing leaders. It's, it's been an amazing amount of work that a lot of people have done, and it's, it's pretty impressive. And is it adding more meetings to your day? So yeah, I'm I'm not one of those leader leader leaders. I've uh, I have been um, working a ton on sepsis in the in the hospital, both at the system level and locally. And so for the emergency medicine side of things, um, my focus has been looking at treatment protocols across the country mm -hmm. and in the literature and working with both the ICU docs and the um, hospitalists, internal medicine and family practice docs. And, and the ER on how are we going to treat coronavirus. Things that are different are like how we give fluids, because it seems like the people that come in sicker aren't as tolerant to fluid risk, like getting IV fluids, their lungs kind of fill up mm -hmm. versus normally people that are really sick, are they need a lot of IV fluid. Um, COVID seems to attack the heart a lot too, and that makes people less tolerant to getting the IV fluids that we would normally do in a patient that was really sick from an infection. Um, so we've been looking at and uh, talking to the hospitals, especially in Seattle, that are part of our system, as well as down in California, and trying to learn as much as we could from their experience and also seeing what's in the literature. But, and I've been mostly focused on treatment aspects. So I've, had a, I've, I've definitely had an increase in meetings and um, little education bulletins. Uh, I did a intubation. We changed the way that we intubate so that it's safer for the providers and limiting the number of people in the room and always doing it in a negative pressure room. So putting in a breathing tube is done differently to protect everyone. Um, I did a training video on that. So that's that's where my extra time's gone. And then all of us are reading a ton to try to hope that we're better at identifying people that might have it when they come in and better at treating them when they do. But yeah, the, the main leadership as they've been working an insane amount of overtime, just making sure that we're ready. So you also mentioned testing, antibody, and PCR. Okay, so there's kind of multiple types of tests out there. The primary testing that happens, and the one that was important at the very beginning that got rolled out really poorly by the CDC. You know, the federal response to this has just been, it's been insane how bad it's been, and that was just one part of it. The fact that we don't have a federal government that's actually coordinating a response to this is, it, it's unimaginable and we're living through it. It's crazy. Um, and it's, there's a really clear reason why the U.S. has 850,000 cases of COVID and 
by far leading the world in the number of deaths, and it's super sad, like the failure at the federal level. But that first test that we all needed was the one to test for the virus, to test for people that have it. And that tends to be a PCR or an NAAT test. And PCR is polymerase chain reaction. I, I don't know the specifics of the testing enough to know, but that's just like a, a way that you are magnifying the virus and identifying the virus in a lab in an accurate way and in a specific way so that you're only identifying that virus mm-hmm. um, specifically, but you're also not missing it. Um, so those are those those are the viral tests similar to what we do for flu um, and a number of other viruses all the time, but you need a specific one for this virus. And so that was the thing that was slow to roll out and still hasn't really ramped up to a level that we really need. Um, and what you're hearing about now, too, is the other the one that identifies people who have the virus actively is the new rapid test. And I believe that's an NAAT and I'm spacing what that stands for at the moment. But that's a, it's almost like a, the, a pregnancy test. Like it's a, you um, get a sample, you put it on a swab stick and you get a, you get lines that are positive kind of thing. That's how, that's at least how the strep test and the flu test work. And I just looked it up and it is the nucleic acid amplification test NAAT perfect yeah and so nucleic acid is this is an RNA virus um, you have DNA viruses and RNA viruses I believe this is one an, an RNA virus and so the nucleic acids uh, are what you're trying to identify to identify this specific virus and you must they must have like a segment that they've because they did the um, the genome sequence for this virus pretty early on who published it and so then then you can develop these tests because you have that sequence so you can develop a way to test for part of that sequence and that's what that's doing and pcr is another way to amplify and identify virus um so the rapid one is the one that's rolling out more providence just got it it's been the state's been prioritizing getting it out providence got it through its own system um, the state's been getting them and, and working hard to get it out to rural areas. Um, and from what I've heard, that test isn't quite as accurate, but it's rapid. And like for a- API, doesn't want to accept any patients. And this makes sense because you're putting people in a you know a close area, like say um, a nursing home or a rehabilitation hospital or API. And, and I think this would have enormous application in the criminal justice system or any kind of group housing situation. Mm-hmm. This way, API doesn't want any new patients unless they've been screened, even if they're asymptomatic. And that, I think that's reasonable in that living kind of situation. So that's where we're going to prioritize using it. We don't have an unlimited supply. Most people that are getting tested will get the normal test. So those are the ones testing for active virus. And then the other test that you hear a lot about in the media is uh, the antibody test. And so that's testing to see if you have developed antibodies to the virus. It essentially has your body had an immune response because none of us have seen this virus before it's a novel virus it's new and in general if you have a, a foreign invader into your body whether it's bacteria or virus or fungus or whatever you'll develop antibodies to that and uh, there's been a lot of work into those tests they historically aren't quite as sensitive or specific as the other tests but the other thing too is 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 the accuracy of a test has a lot to do with how you apply it 
So if you take an antibody test and you test somebody who you know had coronavirus because they had a positive coronavirus test, then you're testing somebody that you're very likely to find antibodies in. So if you have a positive, you know that for the most part, that positive is probably true. Mm -hmm. If you try to apply that test in a different way where you're screening the population, then the accuracy of that test is directly correlated to the amount of disease in the population. And you can use the antibody test to kind of come up with that number. That's how it's been used. Um, in California and Santa Clara County, they're estimating about 2% of the population based on a study with the antibody test has had the virus. In LA County, they're estimating between 2 and 4%. Looking at their numbers and the amount of testing they've done um, per population, our amount of disease is probably less than 2%, at least from what I'm seeing in our population. Um, New York, which was, you know, the nightmare. I mean, the stories coming out of there from providers and are just, in, it's insane how, how chaotic that was. Um, you know, and they lost 15,000 people in the hospitals, and they know that a lot of people died at home. So that, that number is probably well over 20,000 people died there. They just did a study there to see how much virus they think is in the, or how many people in the population have had the virus. And they're coming up with about 20% in New York City and about 13% statewide. So that that's a place where it ripped through super intensely and you're still only at about 20%. Anyway, when you test with an antibody test, let's say you test 1,000 people and you have a test that's 99.5% sensitive for that antibody, which is like the best you could possibly be. Even in that scenario, if you test a thousand people and you and only two percent of your population has had that disease, if somebody tests positive, you're only seventy seven percent certain that that is a true positive. So that's with a test that's ninety nine point five percent sensitive. Most of the antibody tests are in the range of between fifty and ninety percent for a ninety percent sensitive test and you screen a thousand people where two percent of those people have the disease mm -hmm. only 14 percent of that time is that a true positive either 14 or 16 and if you bring that down to 80 percent and that's realistic for these antibody tests only eight percent of the time is that a true positive so these tests are unfortunately we don't have a test like that that can be applied as a screening test to say on the individual level, if you, if, if you were someone that had COVID and tested positive for COVID and then take the antibody test and it says you have antibodies, well, then you, you probably have antibodies. But you can't go through Anchorage, test 2,000 people randomly, and if they test positive, you can't tell them that they can go back to work and are safe from COVID because they have antibodies because you're, you're not very likely to be to be right. So the, unfortunately, those tests don't work in that way that we wish that they would work. So where does that leave us? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it, it leaves us in a place where we, we do need to use the antibody test to get an idea of how much or how many people in Alaska have had coronavirus. I think the antibody test has a use there, like from an epidemi epidemiologic standpoint giving the public health people 
data to help drive decisions. It doesn't mean quite as much on an individual level. So it, it's still a useful test to help drive the decision-making that's coming up. Um, also those studies, you know, New York, LA, Santa Clara, I think what they point to is that we're not getting to herd immunity anytime soon. I mean, New York, which was a total nightmare, doesn't have herd immunity. They're only at 20%. And if you look at, you know, I've been reading some after we talked and, and the lowest number that I've seen that's reasonable for herd immunity is about 60. But I remember from learning about immunizations and stuff, we like to have it above 85% with immunizations. So really, and then looking at Johns Hopkins site, they're saying that realistically you would need between 70 and 90% of people to have had it in order to have herd immunity or to have had a vaccine. So, I mean, I don't, we're not going to have herd immunity until we have a vaccine unless we have a nightmare scenario where everybody gets sick. And, and in that scenario, we get completely overwhelmed and a lot of people die. Um, you know, I mean, I'm convinced that a big part of the mortality in New York was the stories I was hearing from the nurses who knew people who were working there is that here in an ICU, when somebody's on a ventilator, one nurse takes care of either one or two people. In New York, because they were stretched so insanely thin, at least at this hospital where a friend of one of the nurses I work with was working, one person was taking care of 16 people, 12 of whom were on ventilators. I mean, and so there's no, absolutely no way that on an individual level, those people were getting the care that they needed because they were so overwhelmed. And so it's not just numbers of ventilators and it's not just numbers of ICU beds. It's, it's the staffing to be able to handle that too. And that's, that's a little bit the missing piece of all these conversations mm -hmm. is uh, the nursing care. I mean, that's, that's more important than a ventilator, you know, or, or equally as important. And um, in New York, that that wasn't there. And I'm sure the doctors were also spread super thin. So your mortality is going to go up huge. And it did go up hugely when that happened. So we don't want to get overwhelmed at all. We don't want that to happen. Otherwise, a lot of people would die that would not otherwise die. If we can have this be controlled until we have a vaccine, then people that do get sick and people who get critically ill will get at least the best chance they can have that's that's what i hope we can maintain throughout this and then eventually we get a vaccine and then i, I think access to the testing for the virus and zinc's been talking a lot about having the testing capacity to be able to identify every case and get right on top of the contact tracing so people can be if we're going to relax restrictions so at least the people that were in contact with that person can get isolated and in quarantine um, so you definitely need a significant increase in testing capacity as well as willingness for people to go get tested if they have any symptoms for that to happen. And the state's saying that they're, you know, the overall capacity is, is getting there. So maybe we'll be able to do that. You also need the personnel to be able to do that contact tracing. And that is, uh, that's going to take a number of people. So is that the realistic plan right now? to maintain until a vaccine is developed? I mean, unless people know about something I don't know about, I think that's really the only realistic plan we have. You know, when I look at numbers, I can't imagine getting to herd immunity without that in a way where people have the best chance of surviving this disease. Mm -hmm.
but maybe with you know increased public health staffing and increased testing we can do that in a way where we have a mix of relaxed social distancing measures and something that's a little bit more like normal life than what we've had mm -hmm. and not the the intensity of the restrictions we have here now hopefully that works and you you mentioned in our text that social distancing the measures we've been taking here in alaska seem to be working yeah i mean i, I think without a doubt you know um i mean this is where i'm a little bit getting outside of my training but i really think just the basic stuff has really been taken to heart I mean, did did you see the pictures from the protest yesterday out in front of the library? I think I saw somebody take a video of like a line of, I mean, so many different trucks. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was really telling that. And, and, and I was I have to say, I was super impressed. Like we had a. We had a protest about mitigation measures. Where everybody in that protest pretty much was like isolated in cars <laughs> and not in a big crowd breaking the social distancing aspect of this. I, I was, that was kind of gave me hope that even the people that want less restriction are, they care about their health mm -hmm. and they're, they're like trying to be careful in their own way. So whether or not I agree with what the extent that they want to go to in terms of reopening Alaska, you know, I was impressed that that was that was one of the better protests I've seen pictures of compared to some of the stuff I've seen across the country. For sure. You know, they didn't have like a barbecue with no masks and everybody hanging out, sharing drinks and cooking for each other and giving each other hugs. You know, that was not what was happening. So I think people have taken the heart, the basic stuff. And I really think, you know, we're not shaking hands. We're not giving hugs when we see friends. We're wearing masks or I am when I go shopping or, you know, when I go to the grocery store. Um, and I think a lot of people are. We're doing this, the six feet part, I, th I think is, you know, that's great and everything, but like that lack of physical contact and cleaning your hands after you touch a surface and the focus on hygiene. I mean, that's a huge, a huge, huge part of this battle. And maybe as we come back into interacting with a month of training into how to take care of ourselves and slow the spread of a disease. Maybe all that ingrained behavior is the most, you know, was the most important part and, and that we can get back to doing more and having more retail open and mitigating just by our behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably realistic here in Alaska where we have so much space, but in places like New York, I'm not sure if everybody has six feet. Yeah. Well, and like big families living in small, I mean, I know that there's, that's true in Anchorage too, for some of the population as well, you know, bigger families living in small apartments, but it's not true to the extent where it's millions of people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And elevators to get to your apartment and Totally. I mean, we are, we are crazy lucky. We haven't had to shut down our trails and our recreation. You know, on the positive side, it's been amazing seeing all the people out walking and being active. And I feel like people are really trying to take care of themselves. And that's, that's a pretty awesome thing. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, actually, my wife and I just got back from a walk. And after I'm done talking to you, we're going to the grocery store wearing face masks. Right. Like, would you have ever done that before? Well, I mean, you probably would have gone for a walk and gone to the grocery store. But like, <laughs> you know, our, how have your habits changed? Um, we have been isolating, you know, social distancing uh, for the last five weeks, I think now. And like you said earlier about being lucky that you have a job, Carrie and I, my wife, talk about or at least mention it, you know, once a week, like how lucky we feel to have jobs, you know. So, you know, we're definitely feeling that. I mean, if anything, I feel like we're a little healthier, aside from the fact that Carrie isn't able to go to dance, which is a bummer. But yeah, that's big. Aside from that, you know, we're making our own meals. We're going out for walks. We're spending much more time together. So that helps with mental health. Right. So and relationship. So, I mean, I think that aside from all of the the negative repercussions from this, I think that there are also a lot of positive. Yeah, I do, too. I mean, you know, I listened to your interview with Heidi Hill and I mean, I'm, I'm totally aware that this is not all rainbows and unicorns for everybody. Mm hmm. You know, I mean, there's a lot of the the stress is not, doesn't always bring out the best in people, and, and there's probably some people that are scared to come to the ER, you know, for interpersonal violence that really need to be coming to us too. I'm sure because I'm not seeing that much, and I know it's out there happening. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people have tried to make the best of this time, and that and and in a healthy way. I think that's pretty cool. Um, but, but, and I think it shows that we're all able to learn a bunch of new practices. You know, that my kids, they're getting it. They're, they're washing their hands sometimes with gentle reminders. But I think that is the, the biggest part of disease transmission is that, that basic stuff. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully as we, I mean, we're going to see an uptick in cases, but hopefully we can manage that in a way where we can you know, reopen with a well thought out plan in a way where we don't get overwhelmed. You know, one thing that I've been curious about is what is the kind of happy medium of social distancing? Because I think that you have one end of the spectrum, which is just complete isolation. You're only leaving for groceries and maybe some exercise. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, the people that are just completely blase about the whole thing, right? Yeah. They're still going to parties. They're still, you know, there's no social distancing involved at all. Are one of those absolutely incorrect or is there a happy medium? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that there's some happy meeting. That I, I don't think, you know, all it takes is one person at a party to have a cluster. And if all those people aren't really following reasonable guidelines in general, that cluster is going to get big. I mean, we, we saw that, right? Like New Orleans exploded after Mardi Gras because they decided to have Mardi Gras. Mm -hmm. um, Colorado started in the ski areas where people are all close together and then traveling all over the world and spreading it back, spread, coming, traveling to those ski areas and then taking it all home. And so, you know, we saw some cases in Alaska from Vail and 
um, fortunately with responsible people who that didn't turn in we it got managed here in a really appropriate way but you know at that time when things were just starting to expand in the US Seattle Colorado we had people in those places during spring break and well the, and then in France there was a religious festival that ended up spreading a bunch of cases all over France, you know, so I think that it's really, really clear that like large gatherings, that's just not going to be okay for a while. Um, the, there's been newspaper articles on how some of the different churches and synagogues have been dealing with it and moving online and struggling with that, but really embracing it at the same time too. I, I think that breaking down that basic, no, we're not having big gatherings is that's a dangerous thing to do for sure but i I think there's got to be a happy medium somewhere yeah are you aware of anybody that was positively diagnosed with covid19 and has since recovered yeah i I know a few people Um, yep and what does that look like are they at risk for contracting it again so yeah that's the big debate right um i i think you know, there's these case reports of reinfection. I haven't quite heard that. I'm unclear whether that's just persistent virus being detected versus like a second illness. And coronaviruses in general are a virus that the human immune system is pretty used to and develops antibodies to that last a while. So I would be surprised if reinfection in terms of like getting severe illness again is really a risk is a significant risk you know maybe there are specific individuals but how about long-term effects well that's somewhat the question is okay assuming that the antibody response is a good one how long does that last and for some viruses it's pretty much a lifelong immunity and then for other viruses it's a year two years three years Uh, And then that also has to do with how fast a virus mutates. I mean, part of the reason why we have seasonal flus is that flu mutates pretty quickly, and there's a few different versions that circulate. Coronavirus seems to be mutating slower. So I I don't know. This is where we're getting more into immunology and epi, but, I mean, people are talking at least year to years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully within 18 months or two years, we have a, a vaccine. And so then we're not just depending on having had it at that point that that's actually a place where you can use antibody testing once you decide that having antibodies gives you good immunity to getting it again so for as a healthcare worker i'm required to either have the chickenpox vaccine or demonstrate that i have antibodies Mm -hmm. because i was i grew up before the vaccine so and i got chickenpox so I was able to take a test that said I had antibodies and I don't need the vaccine um, when I went to University of Washington. That's a way that this could be used as well, is if it if we see that antibodies do convey good immunity to the disease, once we have a vaccine, you know, say healthcare workers, I would expect would be pretty much required to have that vaccine and same with schools. Uh, 
someone who had had the disease and you know they had the disease because they had a positive test, that's someone who could use the antibody test to say, no, I have antibodies, I don't need the vaccine. So, I mean, you can use those sorts of tests in the, those specific sorts of ways. Maybe to end this, what should we be doing to mitigate this thing becoming severe in this community? I mean, I think doing what we did, I, mean, I have to give huge props to Ann Zink, Joe McLaughlin, Governor Dunleavy, Adam Crumb, Mayor Berkowitz was so out in front of this, you know, relative to other leaders in our, in all over the world, doing exactly what they did mm -hmm. and recognizing that it was going to come into the state. And if we got on top of it early, we might not have a big, quick peak. And it worked, I think. Um, so I think hunkering down, limiting travel, making businesses like the Slope have a smart plan. I think the drop in price in oil also and decrease of work on the Slope, which is unfortunate for Alaska, but at the same time, it probably slowed things down too. I mean, the economic side is super hard, but it probably was a driver of limiting the transmission of the disease as well. Um, so I think keeping that in mind, and when I look at presentations from other parts of the world when they talk about reopening, they talk about it being an ebb and flow, and that you know we may have this reopening Friday and Monday and realize we went a little bit too far because we start to have an uptick, and hopefully we recognize that pretty early and then we need to back off. But I, I think two things. I think one, being flexible as to how open our economic sector is and that we're able to vary that. I think on a personal level, just being really good about social distancing, but even more important than that, washing hands, not shaking hands, not hugging high, definitely washing your hands before you touch your face after you've touched a, any surface, you know, having some hand sanitizer in your car for cleaning your hands before you go into the grocery store, cleaning your hands the minute you get back to your car. All those things that can break up the transmission on a personal level, I think those are huge. I think within a household, you know, when someone gets sick, we all have varying levels of trying to take care of that person and but not we're usually not that worried about getting whatever cold's going through. Well, this one's one to worry about, right? We don't really want this to go through. I I also think the message that yeah, this is something that you're more at risk if you're elderly or have significant comorbidities. Yeah, that's true. But young people die from this and you don't want to be that person that does. Mm -hmm. You know. I mean, one of my friends who got it was is probably right about 40, super athletic, and he was on the edge of coming into the hospital. He was right on the edge. And uh, that's scary to me because that's someone I know personally. I know how good of health he is. I know he doesn't have any underlying condition, and it was way worse than he thought it was going to be. And it doesn't take much to tip over the edge into just being a little bit worse than that. And that's a pretty young guy. Mm -hmm. um, and then also taking to heart that while you might not have high risk, your parents and grandparents do. And, and, and I think that our elders have really taken this to heart and are isolating super hardcore. I feel bad for them because that's 
family is such a huge part of life as we get older and um the absence of that contact is an, an amazing impact but but i think we all want to keep them safe those are kind of things i think about moving forward i think that does it for my questions andy is there anything else you'd like to add i just think one message to the community that like if you're sick enough that you need to be in the er don't don't be too afraid of coming to the er one alaska has pretty low case counts and so the amount of disease in Alaska and even in the hospital is pretty low. Two, we've done a lot to both keep you and us safe. And so if you have chest pain and you think you're having a heart attack, don't stay away from the hospital. If you think you're having a stroke, if you have a wicked pneumonia that you don't think is COVID, but it's still a pneumonia and you're struggling, you know, if you're diabetic and you have these bad ulcers that are getting infected and please come, I never thought I would say this, but um, after years of being like, Wow, uh, people don't quite understand the ERs for emergencies. But if you have an emergency, please come to the ER. Like we, we, we don't want to delay care because of coronavirus. If we have a huge explosion, that may happen. I mean, that for sure was happening in places like New York and Italy, um, where they couldn't take care of the patients with coronavirus, let alone take care of other stuff. And just being in the hospital was a risky thing. That's not the situation here. We we need to be taken care of uh, the people that are sick and, and they need to understand that they still need to come in. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolf, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. <laughs>